Tonight on Farage, the government intends to push ahead with Sizewell C. We'll debate whether we think it's a good idea or a bad idea and ask you whether you're behind the move. And a big royal theme tonight, the Queen will not be in Buckingham Palace next week to see, we think, Liz Truss as the next Prime Minister, her 15th. She'll stay in Balmoral. Well, ask, she'll be worried. And Lee Sansom, who was a bodyguard to Princess Diana of Wales, joins us tonight on the 25th anniversary of the night of her fatal accident. Well, for roughly 20 years, I've been saying I thought there was a threat the lights could go out in this country. I've had no confidence in any government energy policy ever since the days of Tony Blair. It seems to me the more wind turbines we build, the more vulnerable we become when the wind doesn't blow. And in terms of nuclear, we were a country that very much led the world in nuclear energy technology back in the 50s and 60s. But what we've been doing over the last few years is not reinvesting, and they've gradually becoming old and obsolete and shutting down. Now, what's the upside of nuclear? The upside is you get baseload. You know with a nuclear power station exactly how much electricity it's going to produce 24 hours a day. But it's an issue that raises very, very strong emotions on both sides of the argument. Yes, of course, it's CO2 free. But there are many worried, and perhaps what happened in Fukushima a few years ago uh, in Japan, uh, what happened prior to that uh, in Russia, uh, you know, all of these things, all of these things, nuclear accidents, Three Mile Island, these are some of the great fears. But at last, a British government has done something decisive, and this government is pushing ahead. With the, uh, frankly, they've, they've ignored normal planning rules, and Sizewell C on the Suffolk coast is to go ahead. Now, it's estimated to cost about £30 billion. The British government will take a 20% stake in it. That as opposed to the Chinese taking a 20% stake, which I do applaud. EDF, the French energy giant, they'll come in with 20%. They hope the rest of the money can be raised through pension funds and other investors. But is it the right place? Is it the right technology? My question for you at home is, do you support the plans for Sizewell C, Please let me know your views, farage at gbnews.uk. Now, we're going to hear both sides of this argument and let you make your mind up on this. And let's go right now to Suffolk. Let's speak to Pete Wilkinson, who is part of Together Against Sizewell C. And Pete is a campaigner. Pete, the floor is yours. What is wrong? You've had Sizewell A, you've had Sizewell B. It's produced lots of money, lots of jobs in the local Suffolk economy. What on earth is wrong with moving on to Sizewell C? Yeah, well, no miraculous regeneration of the area after Sizewell A or Sizewell B, of course. It's still pretty run down in that area. What's wrong with it is the fact that it's a massive development on the Suffolk coast on an eroding coast, in a flood zone, the, there are still investigations going on to find out whether the land upon which it is being built or its plans to be, planned to be built is actually stable enough to hold the weight of the nuclear power station. It's going to have a massive impact in this area. It's an infringement on the area of outstanding natural beauty. It will Im impact directly the RSPB Minsmere Reserve, which is world-renowned, it's going to impact special sites of special scientific interest. It's going to bring 12.1 million tonnes of aggregate from the West Country 
into an isolated spot on the East Coast at vast costs. You said it was, in your introduction, Nigel, you said it was carbon-free. Sadly, it's not at all. And even if it were, by 2035, which is when the Sizal C is first mooted to bring the first kilowatt of electricity to the grid, the whole of the energy sector will be carbon-free by law. That's what Boris has told us. Really? So the impact of... Yes, absolutely. <laughs> that's, what, that's, what it's, that's what he said. By 2035, the whole yeah. of the energy sector will be yeah, carbon-free. Pete, so Pete, the, Pete the let me just stop you for a sec. It's going to be a benefit. Yeah, go let, on. Let, let me just stop you for a sec. You know, I understand your concerns about the environment. By the way, I've been to Minsmere myself. I've seen the Avocets nesting there. I understand what you're saying. However, we are facing you know, a very major problem with power generation in this country. It's so serious that the lights could even go out next February if a big, if a big anticyclone sits over the North Sea and the Suffolk coast. And I understand that building motorways did, and building when, power when stations, you, these are horrible, ugly out, things. The last time we heard about it, they were supposed to go out in 2017. Didn't go out. We haven't built anything yeah, since I tell you what, already, already in Germany... Well, if you don't think we've got an energy problem, John, well, I, I, I'm afraid you're wrong. In Germany, already we're seeing power rationing. We have to sort ourselves out. The idea that all electricity generation by 2035 is going to be carbon free is baloney. We need something. Are you objecting? Let me just ask you a second question. Let me up. Well, no, Boris will be gone next Tuesday, thank goodness, and we won't have to put up with his ludicrous yeah, energy policy, which has perhaps been him, the I single mean, worst him. thing he's done. I understand, John. I understand. If well, I lived on the Suffolk coast, I'd be very thought. I'd be very, very thoughtful. I get your point. These are great, big, ugly structures. I'm very familiar with Dungeness A and B in Kent. I get those points. I understand it. It's a beautiful stretch of coastline in Suffolk. I get all of that. But let me ask you one more question. Do, do you object to nuclear energy as an industry or is it just the sighting of it in Sizewell? Oh, as an industry. I mean, it's the other side of the nuclear weapons argument. Um, I don't know if you're aware of this, but the Science Policy Research Unit at Sussex University did a study on what actually drives the fixation that the government has with nuclear power. And they looked at it from every angle, from cost to environment to jobs, every angle. And the only thing they could come up with is that it's so important to the nuclear weapons industry because it keeps the uh, ev it keeps the knowledge base and it keeps the supply chain for the renewal of Trident going, without which we wouldn't have Trident available to us in the next 20, 30 years. Wow. It, it's, it's the other side of the nuclear weapons argument. <sighs> I think you'll find, actually, that the Trident nuclear uh, technology is more American than it is UK. John, stay there. Stay there and hear a counter-argument that's now going to be put by Brendan Chilton, CEO of the Independent Business Network, director at the economic think tank, the Institute for Prosperity, and still a serving Labour councillor. I am indeed. Um, <laughs> tell me, Brendan, you've heard what John's had to say. I can understand. Yep. If it's being built in my backyard, I might not be very happy. I mean, I get that, and yep. I get that for bypasses and motorways, but we're living in the 21st century. What are the arguments? I mean, 
John made the point that actually lots of carbon is used in building them, and I get that. However, once they're generating, they're carbon-free. But what is the big argument that you would say for this project? Well, right now, Nigel, this country is experiencing an energy crisis like we have never seen in our lifetimes. Uh, we are being told, as you've just said, the lights could go out as early as February next year, and at the moment the government haven't lifted the moratorium on fracking, and so we've got a limited number of options here. We can't continue to have energy coming into this country from despotic regimes that have proven to be unreliable. Hmm. We need to become energy self-sufficient. Once this extra plant has been built down on the Suffolk coast, those combined will be responsible for up to 15% of the UK's energy needs. Now, I, I totally understand. I've sat on a planning committee for 10 years. Local residents, yeah. doesn't matter where you are, it could be a house extension or, in this case, a nuclear power plant. They don't like development. But we've got to look at the bigger picture here. How can we be in a situation right now where British industry, British businesses could be going bust because they cannot afford the energy uh, that we're currently having to pay? Well, the argument against that would be that whilst nuclear produces electricity that is CO2 free, and whilst nuclear gives you an absolutely guaranteed base load, as opposed mm -hmm. to the intermittency of wind or solar, the argument against it is it's actually quite expensive. Yes, I appreciate that the initial capital costs are very expensive. But again, we've got to look at the longevity of it. The nuclear plant can last for many, many years. We, I, I live in Kent. Dungeness is not far from yeah. me. I've been there for donkey's years and done a good job in supplying energy to this country. France has got a much larger portion uh, of its energy supply coming from nuclear, and they're not in the position that we're in. I would also say, you know, in terms of the size here, a nuclear power plant is much smaller than an enormous wind turbine field, uh, many of them which now surround the country and blight our countryside. Uh, I would much rather have one smaller size for a nuclear plant than an entire country right, full no, of wind fair point. Fair point. So back to Pete Wilkinson. Pete, you know, Brendan makes this, Brendan makes this point uh, that actually compared to, you know, a vast wind array, it's a relatively small area. But here's the really important question I want to ask you. We have to have more energy generation. I, I, think, I think all of us can agree on that. If not, size well C, what would you propose? Well, the first thing is to ask your guest there, how many of the French nuclear plants are operating today? 50% are closed down for forts. So the reliability argument is nonsense, and so is the CO2 argument, Nigel, that you keep going back to. It's not carbon-free by no, any no, manner of means. And as no, I said hang, on, already, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, Pete, Pete, Pete. Energy generation point. is CO2-free. Go on. At the point it's burnt, that's absolutely Please. right, when you put the uranium in the reactors. But either side of that, look at what you're going to do with... 42,000 tonnes of spent nuclear fuel if Boris gets his way on, on 24 gigawatts of nuclear-generated electricity. What are you going to do with 42,000 tonnes of spent nuclear fuel? Where is the energy going to come from? Where is the energy going to come from if we don't what build the government projects should, like size well what, what successive governments should have been doing over the last 20, 30 years is to look at the demand side of the, uh, of the energy argument. Instead of continuing to build supply, we've got to drive down demand. And we can do that. It's already happening. It's 16% ah. less electricity ah. than over the last 10 years. And we can drive it down. There's 30% slack in the energy argument. Okay. And so I, to make really with it, I'm, I'm so is... disappointed to hear from this Labour councillor, that it doesn't even have the vision or the, or the sort of energy or the, or the political backbone to look at the jobs issue. 
you, the sizable sea will cost. Will, will, you will produce nine hundred long-term jobs, and the cost of those those long-term jobs mm. for nine hundred people, which is very very small number, I'm sure you agree, twenty-two million pound for each job. That's not right. a sensible investment. Actually, I tell you, I, I tell you what, Pete. I tell you what, Pete. Nine hundred very well-paid jobs in a remote part of Suffolk actually makes a huge difference to the economy of that area. If you go up to Sellafield in the northwest, I mean, goodness me, the money those men earn and women earn keeps the whole area going. I understand your argument. We must drive down demand. I see completely where you're coming from. I get your passion. I thank you for coming on and debating this with me on GB News. Brendan, I thank you too Cheers, for Adam. coming on and debating this. But I think, in a sense, at the end there with Pete Wilkinson, we got the real reason why people are opposed to nuclear energy. Actually, amongst the green movement in this country, they want our living standards to go backwards. They don't want us driving around in cars. They don't want us heating our homes to 20 degrees centigrade. They don't want us having lots of gizmos and lots of gadgets. They want to take us back in time. And I don't think that a first world, 21st century country wants to do that. I have to say, despite the cost, despite the reservations, I think we have been woefully inadequate in investing in nuclear. Unless you can give me some other way of getting reliable base load energy. And that, I guess, would be reopening coal-fired power stations, I would say. Nuclear, probably, in that context, is the lesser of two evils. Well, a passionate debate about whether Sizewell C is a good idea, whether nuclear energy is a good idea. I asked you whether you would support the Sizewell C project. Pat says, most definitely. Milsey says, I rather agree with this, yes, but it's 12 years too late from their party. Reactive, not proactive, as usual. Yes, Milsey, you're absolutely right. People have been talking about this for the best part of 20 years, not 12. Archie says, yes, I want it in public ownership. I want all nuclear and renewables in public ownership. Well, Archie, if you think the government could organise our energy supply better than the private sector. Good for you. I'd be a little bit sceptical, given the way they'd run pretty much everything else. And another viewer says, yes, should have been signed off five years ago. I do detect, actually, that when it comes to nuclear power, there's been quite a big shift in this country, in America and elsewhere. Kind of Fukushima is a few years ago. It should never have been built on a fault. And I think there is growing support for the idea of nuclear energy. That's the take that I've got. Now, yesterday we learned, last night we learned, that Mikhail Gorbachev had died at the age of 91. He was a truly remarkable figure, the last president of the Soviet Union. And, and you know, he oversaw the breakup of that union. He'd been in the previous 10 years, in relative terms, for the Soviet Union, an enlightened figure. Glasnost, perestroika, an opening up. And interestingly, in 1984, he accepted an invitation to come and meet Mrs. Thatcher in London. Let's have a look, a brief look, at the life and times, particularly in the 1980s, of Mikhail Gorbachev. I like Mr. Gorbachev. We can do business together. We both believe in our own political systems. He firmly believes in his. I firmly believe in mine. General Secretary Gorbachev, if you seek peace, if you seek prosperity for the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, 
If you seek liberalization, come here to this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Well, Reagan's Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Uh, you know, they are the words from the whole of the Reagan presidency I will remember more than absolutely anything else. And blow me down, two years later, the wall did come down. And Mikhail Gorbachev, who to me was a great international hero, had a vision of a modern Russia that would, that, that would transform itself into a full modern democracy. Well, sadly, today it has become anything but. And the oddest thing about Gorbachev is despite the great things that he did, he actually became a somewhat maligned, ignored figure in his own country of Russia. And it's a, it's a strange thing in life. Often those that do great things don't get rewarded in their lifetimes for what they've done, but get remembered very well in history. Well, talk about this, and to talk in particular about how the Iron Lady, that was what Mrs Thatcher was known as, the Iron Lady, standing up to the Soviet Union. How is it, how is it that Mrs Thatcher came to respect that man and said, as you saw in the clip, in 1984, he's a man I can do business with. But joining me from Washington, D.C. is Niall Gardner, a former aide to Margaret Thatcher and now director of the Margaret Thatcher Center for Freedom at the Heritage Foundation there in D.C. Niall, welcome to the program. It was an extraordinary thing, wasn't it, in 1984 for the Iron Lady to invite the president of the Soviet Union to come to London for a conference. Well, Nigel, thanks very much for having me on the show today. And uh, as you point out, of course, Mikhail Gorbachev, a hugely important historic uh, figure, played a key role in the end of the Cold War. Uh, and without a doubt, I think that had it not been for Gorbachev listening to the the advice and the tremendous pressure, of course, of Margaret Thatcher, Ronald Reagan, we would not have seen the end of the Soviet uh, empire. Uh, and Margaret Thatcher recognized in Gorbachev, as, as you pointed out earlier in the clips that, uh, that you've shown here on GB News, you know, Margaret Thatcher saw Gorbachev as a figure she could do business with. At the same time, I think she was under no illusions with regard to what she was dealing with in terms of negotiating with a Soviet Russia. She absolutely hated uh, the communist uh, leadership of the Soviet Union, but she saw in Gorbachev somebody who was willing to compromise and to work with the West to bring about fundamental, far-reaching uh, changes. But at the same time, you know, she projected tremendous strength through increasing British defence spending by uh, 20, 25 percent or so between 1981, 85. She worked with Ronald Reagan to uh, to really stand up to the most monstrously evil empire of our time, the Soviet empire. So that strength and determination resolve, I think, placed tremendous pressure upon Gorbachev to do the right thing. And ultimately, he did. And, and certainly, uh, you know, Gorbachev's role in terms of, uh, you know, bringing down the Soviet empire is absolutely vital. How is he, no, how is he perceived in America? Well, I think that, uh, you know, perceptions of Gorbachev are certain, certainly mixed. I mean, a huge amount of coverage, of course, in, in the United States. But he's widely remembered as, as the man who, who worked with Ronald Reagan uh, to end 
the specter of, of Soviet communism. And uh, if you look at Ronald Reagan's leadership during the Cold War, it was absolutely incredible. And many Americans would like to see that kind of leadership today. Unfortunately, of course, with, with Joe Biden, you have completely the opposite. I mean, Joe Biden is the antithesis of American leadership on the world stage. But it was Ronald Reagan's strength and determination, together with Margaret Thatcher, uh, that really, uh, I think, led to, to Gorbachev to implement, uh, you know, perestroika and the changes that we that we saw there inside the Soviet Union. So uh, a great deal, I think, of, of uh, you know, analysis reaction in the United States today to Gorbachev's death, but also, of course, uh, most Americans remembering the great strength and leadership of Ronald Reagan, who, who played such a pivotal role in the downfall of Soviet well, communism. Well, they were... They were remarkable days, and now thank you for coming on and sharing with us thoughts about the life of Mikhail Gorbachev, who died yesterday at the age of 91. Now, My pleasure. Thank you. Now, Nigerians, we have a queen, of course, who is coming into her middle, late 90s. And we'll know on Monday who the next prime minister is, and the next prime minister will take office on the 6th. But, of course, vital constitutional part is played by the queen, who has to meet the incoming and accept the incoming prime minister. Now, there have been, this will be the 15th prime minister that the queen has met since she first took over as queen. I mean, it's almost unbelievable to think that it's back at the time when Winston Churchill was prime minister. But with increasing concerns about her mobility, perhaps even her health more broadly, I don't know. What's going to have to happen is Liz Truss, and I think Boris Johnson before her, will have to go to Balmoral, but joining me is BBC's former royal correspondent, Michael Cole. Michael, good evening. Good evening, Nigel. You know, it was absurd, wasn't it, to think that the 96-year-old monarch could make an 800-mile round trip simply because the Tory party has been indulging in this ludicrously prolonged, extended election process. I mean... I wrote an article about this saying that this should happen, that they should, together, uh, Boris and the winner, uh, have an away day to Royal Deeside on an RAF jet. You and I, the taxpayer, will be picking up the, the, the fare, and they should go there and see the monarch and do the business. And there is, there is precedent. In 1908, uh, the Prime Minister, Herbert Asquith, had to travel all the way to Biarritz to see King Edward VII, because he was on holiday there, and he wasn't going to come back to London just because Asquith and the Liberal Party had got themselves in a fix. So Asquith had to make six rail journeys, uh, two ferry crossings, and spent four days and had to eat interminable meals with King Tum Tum, as he was called, in order to do the business. And <laughs> even in our own lifetime, and you will probably remember it, the great crisis of 1963, a year of real political crisis, Her Majesty the Queen went to the hospital for officers in Harley Street, where Harold Macmillan was in his sickbed, and she accepted his resignation as Prime Minister there. He was so ill, Nigel, that he lived in more than another 20 years, but at that time, I think he was sick, yeah. mainly sick politics after the Profumo scandal. And after that, the magic circle <laughs> happened and... Okay, Michael. So, so, so basically, basically, this is all a perfectly reasonable arrangement. We have got a couple of precedents in the past of things not happening in Buckingham Palace, uh, and we shouldn't be that worried about the Queen's condition. 
Well, I think she obviously has mobility issues. She's finding it's difficult to get around. Uh, perhaps we all would if we're lucky to be spared to 96 years. But uh, apparently she's as sharp as a tack. She's on the ball and she's able to conduct her business. What she's not able to do is race around the country at the behest of a, 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 a Tory party. You know, you know America. The Americans used to be so impressed that the change of regime was instant here. They spent 18 months electing a new president. And yet it used to be one prime minister goes out of one door and the other prime minister comes into the next and seamlessly the regime goes on. I don't know why the Tory party has indulged in this thing. It was completely unnecessary. Everybody knew the candidates and could have cast their votes on day one. Well, I know. Gone through the straight I, I have to say, Michael, I have to say the last two or three weeks have been a complete and absolute farce. Uh, they've handled this appallingly. Uh, I'm with you on that. And I think your explanation, actually, for why they should go and see the Queen is a rather good one, as I would expect from you, Michael Cole. And thank you again for joining us here on GB News. Now, last night I talked about a lack of medical care. Uh, I talked about the fact that you simply, in most parts of the country, can't get onto an NHS dentist list. Unless, of course, you've crossed the English Channel illegally by dinghy, and then you will get free dental care. It all makes you begin to wonder whether those that do wrong in some ways get treated better than those that do their best to obey the law and pay taxes. On TikTok today, we saw this video of a prisoner's cell. This is an up-to-date TikTok video. Now, albeit, albeit this is, you know, an open prison, it's not a closed prison, uh, but it does all look, well, I would say, pretty luxurious. Now, I'm not suggesting that we go back to the barbaric bad old days, but I was a little bit surprised to see that once people leave prison, they're given an allowance, a handout, if you like, that it went up last year from £46 a week to £76 a week. And now, offenders leaving jail will see their subsistence payment rise by 8.4% in recognition of the cost of living rising. And, interesting, isn't it? That pay rise is double that given to nurses, police, officers and firefighters. Now joining me to discuss this is Mark Johnson, MBE, former prisoner and founder of the Young Offenders Charity, Use a Voice. You've been on this yeah. programme before, we've talked yep. about these issues. I am not suggesting we treat prisoners in a barbaric way or anything else. Yep. But you get my point that when, you know, I'm lumping it in with those that cross the channel and get dental care, and there are people out there doing not really very well-paid jobs yep. who they're doing their best. They're going to struggle like crazy. I mean, if you go to prison, you've got no gas bill. You've got, you've got no electricity yeah. bill. Um, is this right for ex-offenders to get these allowances and for them, and for them to be increased, Mark, by 8.4%? Yeah, so, I mean, the story is 8.4% in reality is £6. It's increased by over a year. Yes. Um, when I left prison in oh, 1992... It was £36, so it hasn't gone up a great deal, you know, regarding... In relative the, terms, that in was relative quite a lot terms. Yeah, it was, yeah. yeah. Interesting. But when you look at 60% of people over the last two years have been released, 60% with into unsettled accommodation, even none, all settled. 1,300 prisoners released in London, completely homeless, with a tent and a carrier bag. 
when you look at it in that way, it's not a great deal of money, actually. Um, the, the video I found was really unhelpful. Um, when I looked at it, I looked at a very clean cell, which is yep. what you want to see, you know, people yep. being taught decency and stuff. Yep. Uh, what I did see was a milk stacked up against a window. Now, each carton of those milk are 50p. Um, if you're in prison today and you don't have a family sending you in approximately £30, you don't eat properly. Really? So, yeah. So what's happened, it's probably in the same way society, is we're becoming detached. The most vulnerable are becoming more vulnerable. You're looking at a, a basic um, wage, sorry, unemployment is uh, £2.50 a week in prison. Mm -hmm. A vape is uh, £3.99. A lot of people listening to that, Mark, will be fairly unsympathetic. They will say, well, prison yeah. actually is there, not just to protect us, but it's actually, it's actually there to punish people. Yep, but when you look at the reconviction figures, 80% uh, of, uh, of the crime stats are reconvictions, cautions and reconvictions. It doesn't work. Here, here's the thing. My, my view of prison, I agree with, I think it's absolutely outrageous, the neglect that goes on amongst the vulnerable and volatile and criminal community uh, in prison it is absolutely scandalous. If you come to my prison, the one thing that you'd be faced with every day, every single day, is the full facts about why you're there. And what I'm going to do is, if I'm the Ministry of Justice, is have a media and PR campaign yeah. to educate the public of literally watching these people being faced with their victims, being faced with the full consequence of their behaviour, and showing the public about the treatment that people need. Because I've, I've never met anybody that comes in contact with this group of people in a therapy session, in a um, you know um, victim-led yeah. uh, way, that walks away with the same opinion. You know, I think it's we need to get involved in criminal justice. We need to be inquiring. This locking people up is so expensive. It's getting more expensive. The uh, oh, no, there's no doubt about that. Yeah. But there's also, I mean, you know, the other approach could be last sort of final thought on this: mm. that if you get people who are recidivist, repeat offenders, maybe the answer is to lock them up for longer. Well, you know, if, if we have a look at it, look at across the Atlantic in America. Um, they lock people up for a very long time yep. and they've got 35% uh, more reconviction figures than we have. The, the stats are, yeah. the data says you know, it doesn't America's, actually work. America's got 5% of the world's population and 20% of the world's prisoners. I don't know the answer to this. I don't think any of us at the moment know the well, answer Well, the to this. one thing that we don't do is we do not fa let people who commit crimes face them with the full facts of right, what no, they've no, done. The no, we I just don't do it. I get the point. Yeah. As ever, Mark Johnson, you make the points very powerfully. Thank you for coming in. In a moment, we'll be joined by Lee Sansom, former bodyguard to Diana the Princess of Wales, and tonight, yes, just before midnight, UK time, 25 years ago today, she was involved in that fatal accident in Paris. We'll discuss all of that with a man who says, had he been there on the night, she wouldn't have died. Well, it's Talking Pints, uh, but tonight's going to be a very reflective Talking Pints, as often we are when we have a drink with each other. I'm joined by Lee Sansom. Lee, welcome to Talking Pints. Thank you. Good and it is, it is a pretty extraordinary anniversary, isn't it? It was just before midnight, 25 years ago, that fatal accident. But before we get to that, you, soldier, Royal Military Police. Yes. And then doing all sorts of extraordinary things in Northern Ireland, sort of working yes. undercover. Mm. And these were, that was a damn dangerous job, wasn't it? It was... It was 
Nigel, yeah, it was um, it was a war. It was that we couldn't call a war because it was on British soil, yep. of course, because it would have damaged our economy. Uh, and you know the amount of service people and civilians and police that were killed there it was incre- thousands yeah, I know. it's incredible we, we we've kind of forgotten how bad it was we we have and, and and at the height of we call it the troubles that's a british thing to say isn't it it's a bit of trouble yeah a little bit of difficulty and yeah. and sometimes you know i, I was sat in uh, belfast or i worked in 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 belfast and down in south armagh bandit country yeah, as we called yeah, it yeah. then and you'd hear all the explosions and everything going on and you're thinking Nobody on mainland understands what's going on because it wasn't reported. And well, then, uh, maybe it was underreported. It was underreported, but I think it went on for that long. Everybody lost the. Yeah. You know. Yeah. A, a little uh, bit like maybe Ukraine is today. People sort of hear it, they switch off a little bit. Yeah, it know. went on for so long. And, and, and don't forget the, the soldiers there. <clears throat> I could be in Belfast in the morning on patrol fearing you were going to get shot at, mm. in the afternoon I could be sat in a pub in Manchester mm. and yeah. there's no decompression, there's nothing. And all within the United Kingdom. No, and, Crazy, and, crazy and, times. And you go on and you're a martial arts coach and you become a bodyguard to the Hollywood stars. How does that happen? Yes, it's... Uh, I think um, when I left the military in 1995, uh, I'd worked with the military police and they're well known for doing close protection in, in the in the military. They took over from the SAS who um who handed it over to the military police, you know, years yeah. and years ago and and they refined and refined and refined the, the close protection world. So we had various close protection roles yeah. within uh, the military police. And I knew a lot of my friends, you know, they served all over the world. So when I came out, um I was determined not to enter security, but I just didn't I, I, the transition to civilian life then was... It's a pretty natural place to go, isn't it? So I, I tried to do a couple of jobs. I just couldn't hold them down. So uh, somebody said, look, there's a job going with the Al-Fayed family. Yep. And uh, Paul Hanley Greaves, um, who I kn- who had known in the military, he was head of security. So I gave him a call and he said, look, come down. And uh, he said, look, Lee, you know, I need you on my team. And, uh, and that's when I started working in, in the close protection industry. Yes. The bodyguard industry. Yeah, and you did a bit of work with Sylvester Stallone and all sorts of people over the years. Yes, yeah, lots of different things. I've, I've worked with... I've, I've done some crazy stuff. I've been so lucky that I've done a, a diverse... Um, a role, I would say, from all sorts of stuff. From just yeah. crazy stuff. And then it finishes up with you being a bodyguard, close protection for mm. one of the most famous women in the world. Yes. And her kids. Yes. And her boyfriend. Yes. Dodie Fayad. Yes. yes. And, you know, there you are. You're in the south of France. It's July 1997. And you seem to form... Well, it seems to me that you must have formed a remarkable bond with Diana, with the boys. Yes. Is that because you were a daredevil? Oh, no, this report that you, that, you, that you were diving off the top I of know, the yacht. And, is that true? It is true, yeah. <laughs> what happened? Come so, and tell us. So it was during the end of the trip and I was on the top deck of the super yacht, the, yeah. the Jonical. It's a long way up. Massive boat. And uh, I was talking to the princes and Harry, was he was a cheeky, naughty boy. 
and I loved him, and, it, and he reminded me of my son, who was a couple of years younger than Harry, and 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 he said, you know, Lee, would you jump off this? Thing? I said, well, of course I would. Why? He said, well, jump off it. And I said, well, I'm not going to jump off it. I mean, I'm in my gear. We're ready to get you guys off onto the the plane home. And he said, well, how much would you do it for? And I said, well, 200 quid. How old is he at the time? Then? He would have been like 12, what, 12? 12. Yeah, 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 my boy was 10, yeah. I think. And, uh, and he just disappeared. And all of a sudden I heard from down below, Lee, Lee, and it was the princess. Is it true you're going to jump off? I'm like, <laughs> no. And she says, I've got the 200 quid. <laughs> and I'm like, no, I've got to do it, haven't I now? So the, the captain of the boat, he was there, and he's like, Lee, you, you've got to be careful, because he had all the lines out. And yeah, I mean, he uh, said, you've got to jump there. Must so, be a long way down. Yeah, because we were in the dock. Uh, so, but I said I'd do it, so anyway, off I jumped, and everyone was, like, clapping, and I came up, and the princess and, and Mr. Fired was there, and he's just looking at me going, I, I knew you'd do it. <laughs> And uh, uh, yeah, got yeah. the 200 quid. There you go, good. Well, it's a heck of a story. Well, you must have left the most extraordinary impression because at the end of all this, <laughs> there is a letter from Kensington Palace dated the 23rd of July, 1997. Dear Lee, yours sincerely, Diana, written in her own hand. And it, and it says, William, Harry and I very much wanted to thank you for taking such good care of us during our stay in Saint-Tropez. We realise that our presence, along with that of the media, made your job enormously difficult, and for that we apologise. However, we all had a magical ten days, which would not have been possible without your invaluable contribution, and for that we all send our warmest possible thanks. It's not just signed by Diana, it's signed by the boys as well. I, how nice. That is a remarkable thing, isn't how, it? It's one of the last letters, well, probably the last letter that all three of them signed. But how nice was that, you know, now? Unbelievable. Like, so I'm at home, and I've looked after a lot of people with yes. egos yes. and all, yes. all this kind of stuff. And there's yes. that lady Amazing. with all that stuff going on, and she has time I, to do that. You must have left the most Amazing. remarkable impression upon her. Now, that's dated July 23rd, so we only, we're, we're only going forward just shy of five weeks until tonight. Mm, I know. It's 25 years ago. You weren't there, were you, on the night? I wasn't in Paris, no. Um, but, you know, I could have been. We drew straws to see who would go. So you could have been there. So uh, you had uh, Trevor Reese jones Yes. You know, great guy, great operator, a friend of mine. Uh, and then you had Kez Wingfield, who was there. There was two of them, obviously, to look after the princess as well. And Kez was on, we'd put him in, in, uh, in solitary on one of the boats because he had the flu. So he didn't spread it to the team and the guests. Mm, mm. And we, there was about five of us, uh, 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 bodyguards, as you were saying. And, and Mr. Fire said, look, we need somebody to go uh, with the princess around on the, on, the, on the Mediterranean trip. And we didn't want to go because we were tired. We'd had a long summer. Um, so we thought we'd draw straws. Mm. So we put, like, so there's five of us there. We put six straws in because Kez was one and he was on the boat. And one of the guys drew the short straw and he said, I guess that's Kez's then. Yeah. So we all said, right, Kez, you're going. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, it, so it could have been anybody. Could have been anybody. Went, but yeah, it, it yeah. Did, it, now, as it turns out, there's all sorts of conspiracy theory. But one thing that I'm struck by is Diana, during that period you were with her, there was the Versace murder, wasn't there? Yes, there was, yeah. And the friendship there was very strong? Yes, extremely, yeah. And she was worried for, yeah. her, own, for her own safety? She was, yeah. 
Yeah, she was, she was worried. And when she spoke to me about it, uh, I just bumped into her on the top of the, the, the Jonicle, the, the, yeah. the super yacht. Yeah. And she turned around and she'd obviously been crying a lot. And we'd been talking about Versace that morning. Everybody thought he'd been assassinated by a hitman at the time. It mm. turned out to be something slightly different. Uh, so at that time, um, we, we thought it was a professional hit, and, and, and everybody thought that in the world. And she turned round, and then she said to me, Lee, have you heard about my friend? And, and which I had, and I said, yes, I have, you know, and, and she, she, you know, she spoke about him, and then she said, do you think they'll do that to me? They. Yes, and with real fear and, and um, vulnerability, so I'm now on this top deck with windows, similar to this, yeah. you know, with windows and you've got all the paparazzi <clears throat> and she walks towards me and we're human beings, right? Mm. You just want to, you would just want to hug somebody and just say, look, you know, mm. you're okay. I couldn't do that. You no. Imagine if the paparazzi, <laughs> dear got dear. A, you, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. so I took a step back and, and, and assured her that we were a great mm. professional team. We were going to look after her and kind of, made her feel a little bit better and, and, and as she was feeling a bit better I said look uh, I've got to go now and I made a sharp exit but, but she, she was, was being trailed wasn't she by British security yes I mean in that tunnel <laughs> yeah in that tunnel and I, and I listen I don't go along with any of the conspiracy no, theories same, I that don't. she was knocked off and no, all this but I, I absolutely yeah. don't but the two motorbikes yeah one going incredibly quickly yeah that may well have been the cause of that accident. I don't, yeah, know, we don't but know. We never know. We don't know. But we never ever identified who was riding those motorbikes. This is the times. thing. I gave evidence at the coroner's inquest, and and my evidence of of me speaking to people on high-powered motorbikes in in Saint Tropez who were former military. Now, when I meet former military, the language that you speak, you know, they're former military, yeah. and they were former military. There's me and a, and a friend of mine. We'd block the road to stop them coming down so the princess could get on the boat and go away with the princess. And it was all, I had this master plan on this small road. We opened the doors of the armoured vehicle so they couldn't get past. Now, <coughs> uh, you know, this is the thing that people don't understand. Our security services and our intelligence services are the best in the world. And they keep us safe, and they do an amazing job. Now, could you imagine... That They're very good at hiding too, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. That's what they, this is the yeah. thing. Yeah. But the thing is, uh, you know, they, they, they weren't there in Saint-Tropez, according to the, mm. the powers that be, or, or in Paris. Paris. Now, the thing is, imagine if the head of the intelligence service or the head of the royal family or, or whoever said, mm. do you know where Princess Diana is at this moment in time? And, and the heir to the throne, yeah. and they went, well, we haven't got a clue. Yeah, of course. It's ridiculous. It's course. But I... But I, but I, I so it's possible that that accident was caused by those motorbikes. It is possible. I, I, I don't think so, because our security services are so professional. Right. But what I do believe is that somebody was there that saw what happened, and they were part of either the French, ours, or a combination. And they were there, and they yeah. couldn't see to be there <clears throat> and I think that's caused some anomalies yeah. in the investigation which the conspiracy theories, theories a, just jump a on. In, a fed in. And Lee, I, I believe it was just no, an you, accident. No, so do I. Lee, you say if you were there you could have saved the life. 
Well, th this is <laughs> this is the thing. If I'd have been there, I had a big thing about seatbelts. Mm. Mr. Fired would sack you if he saw a member of his family without a seatbelt on. Mm. It was a big thing. When when I first uh, drove Dodie, he got in the car. He hated seatbelts. Mm. And uh, probably he lived a lot of the time in the States, mm -hmm. where it's not mandatory. But I told him, asked him to put the seatbelt on. And he said, look, Lee, I don't, I'm not putting the seatbelt yeah. on. So I said, well, I'm not driving the car. He said, mm. no, you're driving the car. You tell me where you can take me. He was in London. And I said, well, the next thing I'm going to do is I'm going to phone your father and you can speak to him. And he went, seatbelt on. Right. Well, every time I saw him. Yeah. Now, I've worked over in, in the war zones in, in Somalia, Libya, you know, where, where, where there's rockets flying at us yeah. and rounds being, but I ensure everybody and must she wasn't wearing have seat the seatbelts on. She wasn't wearing a seatbelt. Unfortunately. If you'd been there, you'd have made sure she did. Yeah, as I, yeah. As I would if I drove you or yeah, your family. No, 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 I get it. Tomorrow, September the 1st, you've got a book coming up. Tell us I about have, it. yeah. Well, I wrote the book in lockdown. It's about my life. There's a couple of chapters about the princess in there, but yep. we all know everybody loved the princess. Yeah. And... Uh, it's uh, about my life. Yep, there we go. Yeah, and all the all the various things I've done all over the world, uh, in security and in martial arts, and uh, well, you've done plenty. Nice love story in there as well. Well, to say, Lee, thank you for joining me on Talking Pints. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, I've got two minutes left with you. It's Barrage the Farage. Let's see what I've got. One viewer asks, what three words sum up Boris's tenure to you? Um, what a waste. It was an old Ian Jury song, wasn't it? What a waste. What a waste. An 80-seat majority loved by loads of people in the public. A chance for great reform. It didn't happen. It's just so sad. It's just such a waste. Rob asks... Has Starmer lost control of the Labour Party and are the unions taking over? Well, look, in terms of the funding of the Labour Party, the unions are completely in control. Well over 85% of Labour funding comes direct from the trade unions. It's why Lord Mandelson and others are urging Starmer to get out and try and raise some money. Perhaps they'll bring back Lord Levy. Who knows? Has Starmer lost control? Do you know what? He may have no personality, he may have no policies, but he's dealt with the left. The right people, the right people in the Labour movement hate him. And that actually puts him in a much stronger position than Jeremy Corbyn. You might not find reasons to vote for Keir Starmer, but there aren't actually the really powerful reasons to vote against him that there were in the Midlands and the North, in what we became you know, to understand as the Red Wall, when it came to Corbyn. I, I actually think when it comes to the hard left, he's done a little bit better than many of us give him credit for. And finally, catch up or brown sauce with your full English. Tim, I do love a full English. I, actually, I went to the butcher's last Saturday and loaded up with sausage and bacon. And uh, yeah, it's got to be brown sauce. I also, I've got to tell you, with sausages, I do actually like quite a hint of uh, English mustard made freshly from the powder as well. I quite like that. And I've, I've got time for one more. I've got time for one more. Robert asks, would you rank Gorbachev as one of the greatest politicians of our era? I thought it was very interesting for us to be able to see Margaret Thatcher, Ronald Reagan and Gorbachev. 
And whatever you think of their individual policies on the economy or whatever it may be, there is little question, very little question, that by the end, by the end of all of their tenures, the world was a safer place than when they'd all come to power. And that was a pretty, pretty remarkable thing. <laughs>